It's good to be with you again. It was two years ago that I was here and preached from the first 11 verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, and now we're going to look at the last few verses, which are from 12 to 18. And so we're looking at the Word of God, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is the Word of God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have, acquaint, I have acquired great wisdom, passing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." And thus far in the Old Covenant reading, and we turn in the New Covenant to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18 and going through 4, 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18, the word of the Lord. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. But for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted it is the Lord who judges me, and therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And thus far in the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. I am going to need a cup of water, please. If someone could just grab me a little cup of water, it won't. I don't need much, but just to wet, wet my whistle. I take a medication that tends to dry my mouth out. So I'm preaching in every church that I preach in now since I retired, pretty much. 
I'm preaching on Ecclesiastes because I'm working on a commentary with a friend who is a, a former professor of Hebrew and other Semitic languages. And um, so I'm going to be, it's going to take a while here. I finished all 19 sermons in Merrimack because I preached a lot during um, the uh, pandemic there. And so um, it was great. I just preached the last two sermons there, but I'm off to a slow start here because this is only the second sermon. So, But it's great to be back with you. And I want to remind you, because I'm pretty sure you've forgotten two years ago the introduction that I gave, which is, what is, what is Ecclesiastes? It's a, a remarkable book. And it's interesting, as we're reading 1 Corinthians, where Paul says that we are stewards, ministers of the word are stewards of the mysteries of God. Mysteries, wow. There's nothing more mysterious than the book of Ecclesiastes. And yet I've found over the years that there's been, uh, it's one of several books that I've preached that people have frequent, most frequently come and said that was encouraging and helpful. And um, we have to understand it, however, in, um, in a realistic way. And so the cynic is the way that liberals who don't believe that this is the word of God um, they, they believe that's who the preacher is, who the writer is. He's kind of disgusted with covenant religion, and the world has gotten him down, and so he's kind of cynical about life. That just doesn't stand up, even in the context of the book itself, where it tells us to fear God and obey his commandments. The second, though, is the one that's common among us, among Bible-believing evangelical Christians, and that is that the book is really a book of evangelism, that the preacher is, or the writer who's using the preacher as his foil, is saying basically that if you're not a believer, this is where you end up. You end up um, having the cynical view of life. And so therefore, you should have faith in the living and true God, fear God, and obey his commandments. Well, this is not really satisfying because it's very clear that the writer here, the framer, who is using the preacher to bring his message, is speaking to us. He's speaking to God's people. He's not speaking out there to the world. Now, can it be used for evangelism? Of course. But the realist view is the, is the, is the way that I believe is the correct view to see this as all. These are inspired words that are teaching us that the way we experience the world is the way it really is. It's a mess. I appreciated that in the pastoral prayer that your elder brought, and it's a it's a wreck. It's it's in trouble. It's um it, it's uh, there seems to be all kinds of injustices. And look at the murdering that's going on now in the world in which we live, especially now in Israel and Gaza. And so there are several elements in the book that are really important to keep in mind. And I hope you'll read through the book several times yourself. It's not a long book when it takes contemplation. And so who is this preacher? It's actually the word koheleth in the Hebrew, and it doesn't really mean preacher, um, though that's what's in almost all of our English translations, and I'll refer to the preacher or koheleth. But he is a Solomonic figure who assembles two things. He assembles words art artfully assembled and put together in order to to teach the assembled people. So he's also a shepherd. He's a shepherd who gathers people. He gathers words in order to bring wisdom to God's covenant people. 
And so the motto here, which we see at the, I'm going to quote the one from the end of the book. He begins it at verse 1, 1, and then he ends, or actually it's 1, 2, and then he ends it with 12, 8. And he says this, he says, Wackiest wackiness, says the preacher. Wackiest wackiness, all is wacky. Or as my friend Meredith said, for New Englanders, we could say wicked wacky. You can laugh. But wicked wacky, wait a minute, when we use that word, what do we do? We are saying, wow, this is wonderfully wacky. No, that's not what he's saying. And of course, Meredith is reminding me that in the Hebrew, wicked here would mean really sinfully, wickedly, the way wicked, that word really, that it's real meaning. That's what we're talking about here. And so wicked wacky is exactly what uh, the writer is dealing with, the wicked wackiness of a world that is mixed up because of sin and where there is no, or there is very little justice. Now the word vanity, and I maybe surprised you by translating it as wacky, Vanity is here 38 times in this book. And when anything is repeated that many times, you'd better pay attention to it. The problem with vanity, which meant a lot more than it does today, way back when the first English translations were coming out, is that we think of it as someone looks in the mirror too much or pays too much attention to their personal looks. Um, and that's certainly not what it means then we might, and I'm sure that as Christians, we can read more into it. We can say, well, vanity means that um, things are, are fleeting. Things are, are not uh, ultimately meaningful. But it means even more than that. It means an irrational or enigmatic, not the way that God designed it to be. And so when someone gets cancer, that, that means that their body, which God created, is out of whack. It's kind of in rebellion against itself. And so we have this in all throughout the world, the justice system. Most of the time, thankfully, in our country, we still get justice in courts of law. But we also see uh, terrible examples of injustice. And so we're frustrated. The world is perplexing the way it seems to be in such a jumble. And it's also fleeting. So it passes, I can't believe I'm 74, I was just 24, what's going on here? And you know, because this is one of the main themes of Ecclesiastes, death wins on a natural level. It gets us all eventually, whether we live to be, as my wife's mother did, to be 101, or as my uh, her dad, to 73. So I'm outliving him by a year, but I know I'm going to leave this life. And so that's frustrating because ultimately that's not the way God created us to be. Now the final thing that is repeated this 28 times, so it's right up there with vanity, is the phrase under the sun. Under the sun. What do you think of when you think of under the sun? What, does, what do you think that means? Well, no, normally we'd think, well, it's the stuff that goes on every day in this world, right? It's under the sun. And that's true. But if you look at the meaning of that phrase here in Ecclesiastes, you'll see that it means much more than this. It actually means under the sun, under God's wrath and curse. And that's one of the things that explains, of course, the way things really are in this world. A mix of blessing and cursing, a mix of, of joy and sorrow. And so 
we see this phrase uh, constantly used throughout the book. And so this gives us a sense when we look at that phrase, think under the wrath and curse of God, which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, because that is the overarching reality. We are not pleasing by nature to the living and true God. We are only pleasing in as much as we have the covering of the blood of the Lamb. Biblical realism, then, is meant to give us here a way of navigating the world in which we live. We see it, we're, it, we see it as being frustrating and all of the rest, and yet at the same time, we recognize that God can be trusted. He is the only one who has an answer to the perplexities of life in a fallen world. Now, there are three cycles of the book, and we're in the first cycle. In the first cycle, he deals with work and wisdom, and he basically asks the question, what good are they? If we're frustrated, what good are they? Is there any value to work and wisdom? So he's exploring this question. And then in the third, second cycle, he deals with work. And the final cycle, he deals with wisdom. And if anyone wants more information on this, by the way, I've been working on it for many years. I'm happy to email you um, the outline and a bunch of things that might help you with the book. But right now, I want you to imagine that you are a brilliant scholar in many fields of learning, and that you have unlimited energy and unlimited funds at your disposal to achieve anything that you have in mind. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing. He's taking Koheleth, he's taking the preacher, a Solomonic figure, and he's saying, imagine that you are Solomon, and you can, in a sense, inhabit this person in the book so that you can contemplate these things with me and, and know that fearing God is the wonderful solution to the perplexities that we face. And so, is the pursuit of wisdom, is the pursuit of work, are these ultimately satisfying? This is what the writer is struggling with. And so the first thing we see, and now we're going to look, if you notice, the two Proverbs, 15 and 18, are um, probably set apart in your version. I'm using the ESV. And um, so if you look at 12 through 16 is one stanza, and then uh, 12 through 15, and then 16 to 18, I should say, is the second stanza. And what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be, in each of my points, taking something from each of those in sequence. And so the first thing we look at is the quester. Who, who is this person that's making this, this quest? Who is the person that is asking these questions about work and about wisdom. And then we'll look at the quest itself, and then we'll look at the conclusion. Well, how do we assess the quest? What, what have we discovered? And so the first is from verses 12 and 16. So you look at those both together. I'll just read them quickly. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And then at 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. 
And so we see the self-introduction and assessment. He's basically saying, I am the best man for this quest. And this fits into these, what we would call, royal testaments in the ancient world. And what they were, they were propaganda, just praising the king and saying how wonderful, how amazing he was. Look at his wisdom and all the things that he's done. And of course, Solomon fits that, that mold. And God gave him amazing gifts. But the fact is, that what he's about to show us is that they don't end up quite the way that the kings of the world would like them to end up. And so this is his royal perspective, and he believes that he is the most likely to find ultimate satisfaction in this world. If there is such satisfaction, is there that satisfaction in this world? Ultimate, final, complete satisfaction and rest. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. And so this is, this is Solomon. He was an amazing person. And in terms of his earthly accomplishments, he was the greatest king of Israel because of all that he did in that regard. And so this royal propaganda, however, ends in nothing and is not as impressive as it might appear to be. And so here's the most impressive person to figure this out, work and wisdom. What value do they have? And he's going to fail. And so the greatest wisdom and knowledge in the world we see here, and he says this in verse 16, there was no one that surpassed. The queen of Sheba came and asked and sought wisdom from Solomon. And so no one surpassed him. First Kings 4, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and reptiles, of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. Uh, I love that we sang Psalm 104 this morning. It shows the range of God's presence in the created world. And so Solomon explored this, and we're exploring it today. Think of all the amazing things that we have discovered in the created order. Even those who discover so often don't acknowledge the one who is the creator of them, but they recognize that there's loads to explore in this fallen world. And so it seems to kind of contradict the, the straight line blessing, though, of uh, Proverbs where it seems that if you do certain things, you get promised happiness, peace, and honor. But, and that, those are all true in an ultimate sense. And yet, what we see here is kind of the flip side of wisdom. Don't expect ultimate satisfaction in this life. Because if you do, you are going to be very, very frustrated and empty. So we come then to the quest. So there's the quester. We see who he is. He's a remarkable human being. He has great resources at his command. And now the quest for wisdom in 13 and 17a, just the first part of 17. And so in 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then in 17a, he says, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So sort of the opposite of wisdom. Is there anything there that's worth pursuing? And so here, we have a kind of covenant of works 
He's pursuing. It's all about him finding out what's going on in the world, trying to figure it out for himself to see if there's any ultimate value in work, and especially here in wisdom. But the quest for wisdom, which, which includes everything in the world, is a deep activity. He's searching out. He's applying his heart. He's going deep within himself. The same word is actually used of the spies going into Canaan. And they spied out Canaan, and they wanted to see exactly what was there. And of course, all but one, Caleb, came back fearful to go in. And Caleb said, no, there are riches here, and God has promised that if we go, he will give us success. So he was trusting God in the midst of a fallen world where there were all kinds of dangers. But they, were, he, they applied themselves to understand what was there. And so here now he's searching out. He's seeking to be wise in heart. And he realizes, though, that this is God's sovereign gift. Notice what it says here, the way that it's put in verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. In other words, he wants us to inquire about life and its meaning. He wants us to be curious, to inspect the world and see what's really there. But the conclusion, of course, will be a little different than the quester had hoped. Notice what he says in the middle of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it's one of my favorite verses because it so so describes the tension that we live with as believers in a fallen world. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And throughout the book is a wonderful encouragement to when you've worked a long day and you come home, rest, enjoy good food and drink. You can be happy with these things as God's gift. But remember, they're temporary. And remember, they're not the only thing going on in life. Because then he says, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And that's why he calls it an unhappy business, this quest. Unhappy. Listen to uh, the new King James says, a burdensome task. The old King James says, a sore travail. And the New Jerusalem Bible, which I don't recommend generally, but sometimes it's interesting the way they translate it, says, it's a wearisome task. It involves everything going on in the world. Did you read the newspaper today? Hopefully you can wait until tomorrow or late this evening, but it's not an encouraging read. Now, it can be interesting. There are some neat things going on. It's fall, and we have fairs and all kinds of wonderful events. And then there's Ukraine and Israel and Gaza. And then there's things happening in your local neighborhood, people being arrested for various crimes. And so... That's the way it turns out, that you see this tremendous mix. It's a wearisome business. And there are days when we just want to say, okay, I just need to get away from all of this and rest. And that's good. But those rests even are only temporary. They're only temporary realities. And so what is the appraisal then? The final appraisal is in verses 14 and 17b. And in 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all hebel, it's all vanity, it's all a striving after wind. And think of that. 
The word hebel, doesn't that sound kind of chaotic? It sounds a wonderful um, onomatopoetic uh, sound to that word, hebel. And think about this other word, tov. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It's the word good. And at the end of Genesis 1, what does the Lord tell us? After each of the days, he said, and God saw that what he had made was good, tov. And then he says at the end of all the creation, and God saw that it was very tov. It was extremely good. It was unusually, amazingly good. And so you put those two words next to each other, and you realize that tov has now been corrupted by hebel, and you have this trouble in the world that sin has brought into history. And this is the appraisal that work and wisdom do not ultimately satisfy. Verse 17b then says, I perceive that this also is but striving after wind. And notice he, he uses that word vanity, and then he doubles it, though. In each of these two stanzas, he ends there with a striving after wind, a striving after wind. And we know what that's like. You can't see wind. I can see the result of it, but it's very difficult to control unless you're a really good sailor. And so this striving, this grasping, this, this vanity, this, this vapor, this breath, this passing, seeming nothingness is frustrating. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and a fool will be servant to the wise of heart. And so vexation of spirit, a restlessness, <laughs> exactly the opposite. I really appreciate the way that um, I heard the Sabbath day emphasized here, that we have a day of rest. We have a day which is a forte, so it's an hors d'oeuvre of the final day, which is yet to come, when, when there'll be no more trouble, no more trouble, no more sin, and no more death. Can you imagine that? This is the way that God has taught us in his word to believe. And if we don't believe it, we'll simply be frustrated. We'll simply be left with sorrow and grief and, and burdens in this world. And so all wisdom is ultimately unsatisfying. Even wisdom itself is a good thing, but it's limited. Along the way, he, he unpacks that that wisdom is limited. The, the fruits of work, they're real, but they're limited. The fruit of wisdom is real, but it's limited. Because guess what? God is in control. He is the ultimate one. And he doesn't really take kindly to the fact that we'd like to enjoy his world without acknowledging him. Well, of course, that's what we're doing here uh, in worship. We're worshiping him and acknowledging him. And that is his ultimate goal in each of our lives. <clears throat> now we look at those two proverbs. Those are mysterious. They're kind of just thrown in there, but they're done artistically. He has a purpose in doing this. And so let's look at those for a moment. Verse 15. What does verse 15 say? What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is crooked cannot be made straight. 
So this is what we might call a confirming proverb. He really, he wants to seal what he said prior to this in several verses. And so now he's saying, you can't figure out a wacky world and you can't straighten it. Think for a moment about some of the utopian visions that have done such damage in our world. In the 20th century, communism, which if you talk to a pure communist, they are idealistic beyond, well, reality. And they, I've known some back in my hippie days, um, and they were socialist communists. They believed that they could solve the problems of the world, and if we just had the right government that had perfect control over all of its citizens, everything would be just hunky-dory. And millions of people have been put to death as a result of that absolutely unrealistic view of reality. And so this is uh, trying to straighten the crooked, and the writer is saying, you can't do this. And if you try, you can do a lot of damage. And think about some of the other things like the, uh, the, the climate crisis. Um, if they, that's the words that are used. There's a crisis now in the climate. Well, there is in a sense because it's under God's wrath and curse. Crops fail, and they have since way before um, the internal combustion engine. And so the fact is, that we cannot straighten this world. We can't even predict the weather accurately this week, much less for the next 50 years. And the fact is, I even have heard someone say, well, if we just did such and such, it was some scientific thing that you could do to the atmosphere, it would solve the climate problem. <laughs> wow, you are a dreamer. I am not a scientist, but I know one thing, that climate is not just a single thing. It's incredibly incredibly complicated. God's world is incredibly complicated beyond what we can ever finally discern ourselves. And so God frustrates all things by making them crooked, allowing them to be crooked so that we will trust him because he's the only one that can straighten out the crooked. And we, it's hard to get that through our thick skulls, but this is what Proverbs, uh, excuse me, what Ecclesiastes is seeking to get us to do. And I really believe that this is a real tool for evangelism. We all know someone. I, I know someone that I recently had an interview with, actually, that um, believes, she said, the one thing I'm committed to above all other things is the climate crisis because I want my daughter to, be, to live in a world where the environment is, is, is perfect. And um, it's a perfect example of where we can talk lovingly, graciously, about the fact that the Bible tells us something different, that the creator of all of this is telling us something quite different, that we cannot make the crooked straight. God can. He has in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made the, the crooked perfectly straight by raising him from the dead, having died for our sins and created a whole new creation. That's us, by the way. Do you ever think of yourself that way as a whole new creation? You're a new creation. Many days when we get out of bed, especially as we get older, we feel like a very old creation. But the fact is that we are in, in the sight of God through our union with Christ, a new creation. He has made the crooked, that would be us, straight, but only through his son, the lamb. He didn't, he, we can't do that ourselves. We always live under the covenant of works. 
from the old garden where Adam fell and broke the covenant. We still think we can fix our problems. We can do something about our sins. We can work our way to heaven. And even those of us who have been Christians for a very long time are often tempted with thinking that we can solve things, we can figure things out. And the fact of the word of God here is telling us in no uncertain terms that we cannot figure things out. We need to trust the living and true God who alone has figured things out because he created them. And he planned in history that there should be this fall. We wonder, how, why did God do this? We can't rise above that. He knows. We don't. But this world in which we live is his world. And he's the one that controls everything in our lives, the good and the bad. And so the second proverb is basically saying this, wisdom and knowledge end in grief. Wisdom and knowledge end in grief. Wow, that's not a happy thought. And in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases grief or sorrow. And so we have that sad, that sad, that crookedness if we keep looking at it, and that's all we do. If we stay like Psalm 73 on the horizontal plane, we will only be left with that, with vexation, that's, that's frustration, and grief, discouragement. But that's not what we're left with. And even though that's where this passage ends, it's in the context, remember, of the entire Bible. And thank God it's in the context especially of this amazing new covenant that we have, this amazing revelation, which is not just Scripture, it's Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the second person of the Trinity invading human history. I was just reading, I think it was in maybe Spurgeon or Winslow, I forget who was saying this, but they were saying, you know, the first coming of Christ was kind of unnoticed, and yet at the same time it really wasn't, because look what happened to Herod. Look what happened um, in, in the history of Jesus coming into the world, the way he shocked the Pharisees, he upended all of their self-righteousness, and he showed the way of sinners to be saved and died on the cross and was raised again on the third day. And when he was confronted, remember, in the garden, the, the soldiers were so awed by his presence that they all fell backwards. That's how amazing he was, even in his humiliation. So imagine what he'll be like when he comes again. Amazing. And I think the same writer was saying, when he comes again, if we are in the Lamb, we will have no fear. We will have trembling. I'm quite sure of that. But we'll know he's come for us. He's come to save us from sin and from death in a complete and perfect way. And that will never be uh, an, uh, there'll never be a, uh, uh, any of that evermore in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be completely eradicated. And so this is where lasting value is found only in the Lamb. And so why work and seek wisdom? Because God has given us work to do, and he wants us to explore his world. He wants us to understand things. But the ultimate thing he wants us to understand is that he is sovereign, and that ultimate satisfaction cannot be found in a fallen world. There is no ultimate satisfaction here. The design that he has given to us is that we should often be frustrated and troubled and find difficulties in our lives in order to get our attention. He wants our attention so that 
um, we will love him, not this world. We can enjoy things in this world. And I always love the balance that this book gives us. It's not saying we have to walk around looking at our shoes and being sorrowful all the time. No. He's, many times he says rejoice, enjoy, eat, drink, and be merry. Interestingly, we think, oh, that's bad. No. He's saying that that's okay. It's temporary, and it's God's blessing. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that if all you have is eat, drink, and be merry, then you are of all men most miserable. And he says that about the resurrection. If, if there is no resurrection, then that's all we have, and we're miserable. We are full of sorrow, vexation, and grief. But that's not all that we have. It's interesting about when we look at the things that that seek to win us over, you know, everything from sex to all the gadgets that we have, the wonderful gourmet food, and there's so many things that are here. And one commentary, uh, Keddy, um, I'm forgetting his first name, but he's a, he's a very good Reformed commentator, and he says, there is no God but consumption, and the ad men are his prophets. That's a great, a great quote. He, I think he uses it of this passage. And so, this is all the world has. And Paul says in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility. And by the way, it's one of only two passages in the New Testament where he's clearly referring to vanity, futility. It's a similar word in the Greek. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's interesting. In, so he subjected it. Paul's really repeat. he's almost summing up the entire book, that the world is a mess, but God is in control of that mess, as well as the blessings he gives us along the way as pilgrims. I was reading uh, this morning in Zechariah, another mysterious book. It's all kinds of imagery. But at the end of chapter 2, he talks about giving promises now to Israel, who's been, um, you know, has been attacked and, and humiliated. And he's giving promises to them for the future. And he's saying, I'm going to build a wall of flame around God's people with glory in its midst. Imagine that's so his presence in the midst of his people. That's why we're here this morning, is it not? We're here for his presence. We want to know that he is here, healing, blessing, forgiving, encouraging, strengthening, rebuking, and promising um, a glorious future. That's exactly what he's saying in that passage. Glory in its midst. By the way, Meredith G. Klein, the son of my friend Meredith, G. has gone to be with the Lord, but he wrote a wonderful commentary on Zechariah, and he named it glory in our midst. So then finally, God wants us for himself. That's what he taught Solomon, and that's what he taught the preacher. That's what Koheleth learned, that all the things that happened in his life, the frustrations and the futility, the emptiness, and the knowledge that he will have to face death, that life comes to a screeching end no matter how long you live, all of that is to bring us to himself. And of course, <laughs> He brought us to himself in the ultimate way with the one who said, something greater than Solomon is here. Well, that was Jesus. 
something far greater than Solomon. Here you have not only one who has control over all things in the flesh, in a human being. That's amazing and hard for us to wrap our minds around. But he created it all. He is the word. He is the logos through whom all things have been created. And he's the one that has come, but he came to die in our place. We'll celebrate that in a moment. But he came in order that we might have everlasting life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So imagine that the world's folly is our salvation. The world's folly is our salvation. And that is wisdom. So, see, that couldn't, we couldn't figure that out. You can't figure that out with a microscope or a telescope. You can't figure that out with all the reading that you might do in the world or all the genius that you might have intellectually. You can't figure that out. Only God could bring such a salvation. And so there we have the cross, which is the folly of the world, which is humiliating to the world. And the world hates, by the way. We see a hatred of, of the Jewish people. There is also in this country a growing hatred of us. We face that. And now it's a soft kind of persecution, but don't take for granted what has been rather unusual in history, which is the history of our country. The fact is that the cross is something which the world does not like unless God is working in their hearts to turn them to trust in our Savior. And so this brings us to where God wants us to be in communion with him. And he says, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is this life, is in this life, you fulfill their womb with treasure. You fill their womb with treasure and they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And so there is satisfaction in the presence of God. That's the ultimate thing. You know, I've recently several people have died that I know fairly well, and the way we speak of them is that they are with the Lord. And we believe that that's not just a fiction, it's not pie in the sky, it's what the Bible teaches us. And it's rooted actually in the most amazing historical fact, something that actually happened in history and has more attestation than all the writings of Plato and Aristotle and the ancients. And that is that Jesus the Christ was incarnate of a virgin, lived a perfectly righteous life like no other, was crucified on the cross as an atonement for our sin, and raised dead on the third day and ate fish. He had breakfast with his disciples to encourage them that this was not pie in the sky. And if someone take, would take their life, they shouldn't be afraid of that. They don't seek it, but they're not afraid of it because they know 
They have everlasting life, and we, we will be in that presence for all eternity. And as Psalm 107 says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And so people of God, in the midst of a fallen world, with all of its frustrations and all of its vanity, all of its hebel, you can look to the Lord and know that he will see you through. That's one of the reasons he gave us the whole Bible, but especially this book of Ecclesiastes. It faces the real world, not with despair, but with faith. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful um, that you've given us this word, and sometimes difficult to understand, Lord. We know that we are imperfect even in understanding your word, but we thank you that you give us your spirit in order that we may understand that word and take away from it all that we need for today and tomorrow in order to be pleasing um, to you. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you have given us this reality and pray that you would bless us in this week, that we might fear God and keep your commandments. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.